Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. For those of you who are visiting with us, we've been working our way uh, over several weeks, actually, through the book of Romans, and this is now our next to last message, 43 of 44 uh, in our series through Romans. And our text this morning is Romans 15, verse 14, through the end of the chapter, verse 33. And I want to ask you one more time, if you're able, if you would stand so that we might honor once more the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Romans chapter 15, beginning in verse 14. Hear the reading of God's word. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points... I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace of God, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. To bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do so, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers. By our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my servants, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, use the preaching of your word now for the good of your saints. Do everything that you desire to do in our hearts to transform our lives and make us more conformed to the image of your Son. Aid me. I confess my own weakness. My memory, my ability to communicate clearly often fails. I pray that you would strengthen me to those ends. That you would allow the preaching of your word to be not a demonstration of the wisdom of man but the demonstration of the Spirit of God working in power. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. 
one of the things that I look forward to in Paul's letters are when he takes this turn to a bit of an autobiographical section in his letters. Now, to be sure, he doesn't do it for the good part of his letters. For most of his letters, he spends about half the time, uh, generally speaking, we might say, about half the time talking through doctrine, teaching doctrine, and then the rest of the time giving exhortations. But almost inevitably, in each of his letters, there'll be some small sections, some glimpses where he turns autobiographical, where he lets us in a bit to his thinking, to his heart, to his plans, what, what drives his heart and what drives his labors. And I always look forward to those sections for this reason. I feel like when Paul opens up and lets us see a bit what drives his heart, what drives his labors, what drives his life, it helps me to refocus myself. Because when I see in Paul what drives him, obviously what drives him are things that are honoring to the Lord. And, and in my own life, I feel like there are times I can lose focus. And so these, these opportunities to go back to these texts where Paul just kind of holds up a model, as he would say to the Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I feel like it's an opportunity for us to do that. And so this week, as I turned to study the text at the beginning of the week and, and work through it and meditate on it, I was looking forward to it. I thought I've seen these autobiographical sketches and, and Paul's letters before. as a chance, I think, for me to refocus. But I think when I turned to this text, I found that there was much more than simply something for me. Because when Paul writes first, uh, Romans 15, 14 through 33, he not only is autobiographical, but it's as if, and at many points he does explicitly do this, it's as if he's v- inviting the church to join him to join him in these tasks, to be co-laborers. And so I thought, not only did this text not disappoint in the sense that it allowed me, to, I think, to refocus myself on some things, but my hope is that it will allow us as an entire church to refocus ourselves, to remember what it is that we're about as a church, what it is that we need to be doing, what it is that we need to be thinking as members of the church. It, in this text, Paul deals with everything, I think, from our heart and mission to finances and prayer. And so what I want to do then is use this morning to highlight some of these truths that I think can help refocus us as a church. And I want to give them to you. I, I could give them to you just as, as, as observations from the text. Paul does this or something. But I want to give them to us in the form of exhortations. Because I want us to feel, I think, the call to imitate the faith of this apostle Paul who and now as he's getting near the end of this letter to the Romans, I think holds up and focus things that we need to be bound as well. So I want to list four of these exhortations for us this morning. The first one is this. Labor to present your fellow church members as pleasing offerings to God. Labor to present your fellow church members as pleasing offerings to God. Now, When Paul begins this last section of the book of Romans, keep in mind he's writing to a group of believers in the church of Rome that he had not met personally, had not face-to-face dialogue with. And so he's written to them some very hard things along the way, sometimes some in-your-face kind of things, calling them to repentance. And so when he starts this last section, in verse 14, he, he says to them, listen, he says, I myself, I'm satisfied about you, my brothers. You're full of goodness, you're filled with knowledge, you're able to instruct one another. But then he explains, but, but I've had to write to you boldly. 
And, and the reason I've done that is because I have a specific role. Here's what he writes, verse 15. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. In other words, what Paul's making reference to, you'll remember this from the book of Acts, is when the Lord Jesus Christ first opened Paul's eyes to the fact that he had lived and died and raised for him and Paul became a believer, the Lord Jesus Christ commissioned him to be an apostle. As Paul will say later in another autobiographical section, it was as if he was an apostle born out of due time. An apostle came along after the other apostles. But specifically, he was commissioned to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He was uh, to be the one to take the gospel to them. He's kind of as if he's a, uh, an apostle pastor of the entire Gentile world in one sense. And that's why all of these letters, he's addressing these issues to these Gentiles. And he explains to these Roman believers, it's why, though he never met them face to face, he writes to them and he writes to them boldly because he feels a certain responsibility for them. The church in Rome would have been largely made up of Gentiles that Paul's never met. That seems odd. When Paul thinks of himself as someone to whom God has given great grace to be an apostle to these Gentiles, and so he goes, I've, I've written to you because I'm shepherding you. I'm caring for you. I bear responsibility for you. Grace was given to me for that. That's why I've written. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just picture his work in their lives as, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles and you're Gentiles, therefore I'm ministering to you. He pictures his ministry among them as a priest and they as the offering that he's making. Here's what he says. Picking back up in verse 15. But on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul's picking up this Old Testament imagery where the priest would come and he would make an offering, but the offering would typically be an animal that would be slaughtered. Now, Paul's already opened the door for this a little bit because you remember earlier in the book of Romans, just a few chapters back, Paul said to these Roman believers, I want you to offer your lives as sacrifices to the Lord. But he doesn't mean give yourselves over to death and, unless you're doing it in obedience to, to Christ and your life is taken from you. He says, I want you to offer your lives as a living sacrifice. So already Paul's established this category of giving ourselves as a living sacrifice. And so the way Paul's picturing it is this. It's as if he's a priest and he's ready to offer a sacrifice, an offering to the Lord. Instead of a dead animal, he's offering the living Gentiles. And he knows, as in the Old Testament, the sacrifice had to be sanctified and holy without spot or blemish. And he says, that's been my labor with the Gentiles. I want to be able to say, Lord, you've called me as an apostle to these people. Here they are. I present them to you as an offering to you, a sanctified offering. That's why he was so concerned about the Gentile believers in Rome. He wanted them to be part of that offering that he could say, Lord, here are your people, spotless and purified and sanctified and instructed in the ways that they should go and living it out. It's a lot like, I think, the same thing we see of Jesus in John 17. Do you remember the high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross? He says to the Father, all that you've given me, I've kept. I've preserved them. There's none lost except the son of perdition, perdition Judas. I've kept them, they know you. In other words, Jesus was saying, you've given them to me, I've cared for them, and I'm offering them back to you. And this is what Paul's to do. Now, here's my argument. 
I think that we as members of a local church should think that way toward one another. Now, let me, let me take something. You could give some pushback here. And you could say, first of all, Lee, we're not a church full of apostles like Paul. Fair. Second, you could push back and say, we're not even all pastors. Few of you are, not most of us. And it's pastors, specifically, who according to Romans 13, 17, are to keep oversight of the congregation because one day on the judgment seat of Christ, according to, at the judgment seat of Christ, according to Hebrews 13, 17, we're going to give an account to Jesus Christ for how we've overseen the souls of those put under our care. Hebrews 13, 17 is a verse that keeps every pastor awake at night, right? So you could say, that's a task to you. There's a special accounting that you'll give at the day of judgment that, that not just everyone will give. Fair. But if you continue to read through the pages of the scripture, one of the things you'll notice is that some of the tasks that the Lord gives to pastors, he also gives to the congregation as a whole. So think, for example, about Acts chapter 20. In Acts 20, Paul met with the Ephesian elders because he said, I want you to keep watch over the flock. I want you to guard them from false teaching. But then think of what he said to the Galatians. In Galatians uh, chapter 1, verse 2, in chapter 2, rather, Paul says to them that he wanted them to guard themselves from false teaching. In fact, Paul says, if I or an angel from heaven come and start preaching to you something different from the gospel, you let him be a curse. So Paul was saying, I'm going to guard you from false teaching, but don't think that alleviates you from the responsibility of guarding yourself from false teaching. In the same way, yes, pastors oversee the congregation, but that doesn't alleviate the congregation's responsibility to oversee one another in the perseverance of the faith. In fact, in Matthew chapter 18, when Jesus comes to the point of, of you have an individual who is not repentant and they need to be removed from the church, Jesus does not say, now when this day comes, I want the pastors to get together in a back room, they know what's going on with the individual, and I want them to make the decision to remove that individual from the church. After all, I've given them oversight of the congregation. No, he doesn't say that. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, if he fails to repent, take two witnesses. If he fails to repent again, tell it to the church. Let the church exercise their authority. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, when an individual has been repentant and he's ready to be received back into the church, Paul doesn't write to those who are pastors at Corinth and say, you receive him back. He says to the church, you all forgive him. You all receive him back. In other words, there is a corporate congregational responsibility we bear to care for one another. This is one reason why, let me just address something we do very practically here. It's why when we accept people into membership, I don't stand up, or whoever's doing the announcements, we don't stand up and say, this morning we're announcing to you that we're receiving so-and-so in the membership. We stand up and we say, this morning the pastors are recommending that we receive so-and-so in the membership. And then we take a week. And then when we receive them in the membership, we do it in a very corporate way, don't we? We bring them up front. And the congregation gather around and lay hands on them and pray for them. Why? We do this very soberly. We take a week. We do it very corporately. Because what we're saying as a church at that point is we're owning responsibility for this one's spiritual growth. That's what we're saying as a congregation. I love congregationalism. Congregationalism is not just about voting on the budget. Congregationalism 
is teaching that the whole congregation bears responsibility for the well-being of one another. Now, for sure, as a member of Cornerstone, you might say, good grief, it's impossible to have that kind of, uh, you know, impact on each other's life. I agree with that. That's one of the reasons why as pastors we've stepped back and said, how can we enable the church to care for itself, to oversee itself? That's one reason why we set up small groups and other things. We're always thinking and planning and praying for these kinds of things and working through them. But in the end, we as a congregation bear responsibility for one another. And therefore, I do not think it's far-fetched to say the kind of heart that Paul felt for the Gentiles, I want to look at you and think of you as a people that I want to offer to the Lord and say, you've put them in my care, I've aided in their perseverance. Here they are. We as church members toward one another would do well to imitate Paul and think of that way, to labor to present your fellow church members as pleasing offerings to God. Now, if we stop there, the church focus would only be inward. But that's not ideal, and that's not biblical. And so this brings us to a second exhortation. Plant churches where people need to hear the gospel. Plant churches where people need to hear the gospel. In verses 17 through 21, in this autobiographical section of this uh, letter, Paul begins to unveil his own work, his own labors in church planting. Here's what he says in verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. In other words, Paul begins this section, this is the way Paul typically talks. When he says something like, I have reason to be proud of my work, that might sound weird. Is this Paul boasting? But you'll notice he instantly goes on, I'm not going to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. This is how Paul typically does things. You can, you can see another example in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, I'm unworthy to be an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And then he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And then he turns to his own labors. And he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But I've worked harder than any of them. That is, compared to the other apostles, I'm not worthy of being an apostle. But you know what? I've worked hard at this. And then instantly, what does he do? I, I, I've worked harder than any of them. Well, not I, but the grace of God within me. Right? This is just how Paul thinks. So for Paul to talk about his labors in Paul's mind is to talk about Christ's grace and strength and power working through him. So if he says, look at what has been accomplished in my life, in Paul's mind, he is boasting about the work of Jesus Christ. And so it is here. I have reason to be proud of my work. But now listen, I'm not speaking of anything that I've done apart from Christ, but of what Christ has done through me. In my words and in my deeds, that was Christ. By the power of the Spirit and signs and wonders. You read uh, through the book of Acts, the Spirit of God does amazing things through Paul, often healing, even raising from the dead and doing these kinds of things. Paul says, that was the Spirit of God working. Uh, by the power of the Spirit of God, he's just giving credit to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the power of the Spirit, all along the way. But then he talks about, specifically, his work. At the end of verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, 
lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never, see, never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul says, here's been my mission. I sp- I've not wanted to build on another man's foundation. Now, Paul has no problem with anyone else doing that. Paul would plant the church, for example, and Titus would come along and pastor it. Paul would plant the church, Timothy would come along and pastor. Paul has no problems with others coming in and building on a foundation. In fact, that's a crucial need. But Paul says, my goal has been this. I've been wanting to go to areas where the gospel has not been proclaimed and proclaim the gospel there. And what it's, what it's meant for me, he says, is if you go to Jerusalem and then you go all around to Illyricum, that area, I've done it. I've been faithful. In fact, it's interesting, the words Paul uses at the end of verse 19, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Or if you were to skip down to verse 23 for a second, he says, but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Now that's interesting. In this vast area, filled with towns and villages all around, Paul says, I fulfill the ministry. I no longer have any work to do there. Now, every commentator I looked at about that verse, those two verses, brought up the same question. And the question was this, how can Paul say that when there would have certainly been numerous towns and villages he didn't make it to? I mean, it's literally impossible to get to every town and village in that whole area. So how can he say, I fulfilled the ministry of Christ. I no longer have any work to do in these regions. And interestingly, as many commentators brought up that question, equally as many of them answered the question the same way. And here's how they answered it. The reason Paul can say he's fulfilled the ministry of Christ in those areas and the reason he no longer has any work to do in those regions is because what Paul had done is he had targeted specific areas and had proclaimed the gospel and planted churches. And when churches are planted and they are made to be stable, reproducing churches, Paul knew because I'm planting churches in these areas, the outspread towns and villages will be reached through those churches. In other words, Paul's missionary effort was a specific church planting effort because he wanted the work to outlast him being there. And he wanted the work to go farther than he could reach. And so he strategically and specifically was preaching the gospel where it had not been named, planting churches, seeing churches stabilized, and those churches reached the area. One older commentator wrote this. He could say that he had completed the work of preaching the gospel from Jerusalem to Illyricum only because this statement would have meant for him that the message had been proclaimed and the church planted. In each of the nations, north and west of Asia Minor and the Greek Peninsula, proclaimed widely enough and planted firmly enough to assure that the name of Christ would soon be heard throughout its borders. That's the goal. Proclaim the gospel widely and plant churches firmly so that they might continue the work long after you're gone. In his excellent little book on missions, I Actually, I read this little book. It's short. It's one you could read in an afternoon. Um, The title is, I'm going to look real quick, Missions. 
Um, no, no, the subtitle, right? Missions, How the Local Church Goes Global by Andy Johnson. I just think it's fabulous. I read it. I bought like 12 copies to give away. If you ever want to come by and say, give me a copy, I've got a few. I give them for free. Andy Johnson is a little book I just thought was perfect. As I read the book, just every line I thought, he's thinking about this perfectly. And in a little paragraph, he was talking about how the local church is central. Missions is done through the church to the end of seeing churches reproduced. And here's what he wrote. God's word is clear. We are to pursue obedience, build up disciples, and plant other churches through the local church. The local church makes clear who is and who is not a disciple through baptism and membership in the body. The local church is where most discipling naturally takes place. The local church sends out missionaries and cares for missionaries after they're sent. And healthy, reproducing local churches are the aim and end of our missionary effort. To that I say, amen. And I think by saying that, Andy Johnson is merely mimicking the apostle Paul. This is one reason why as a church we've been very serious about saying we need to be training individuals to be able to send them out to do the work of church planting. We need to, when we equip them here, we need to send them. We need to support them. We need to be discipling one another so that others will go with them as well. So that, point one, yes, we're presenting one another as pleasing offerings to the Lord, but we're not concerned only about what's going on in our walls. We want to see Christ proclaimed and churches planted elsewhere. And it's why we have sent out many, and we plan to do that again and again and again, because I think this is what the Great Commission mandates. So one, we labor to present our fellow members as pleasing offerings to the Lord. Second, we plant churches where people need to hear the gospel. Third, exhortation, put your finances into this glorious work. Put your finances into this glorious work. In verses 22 through 29, honestly, when you have a text like this and you're planning to preach it, you read it and you go, oh, so Paul's giving us travel plans. That's interesting, right? It's tough to make it a one-to-one, like Paul traveled, we should travel, right? Um, I don't think so. But as you read through his plans about traveling, there actually is this one theme. It comes up a couple of times. And this writing, and it's interesting, it, it almost feels out of place a little bit. In fact, he drastically alters his plans at one point because of a certain reality. Let me just read briefly, verses 22 through 29. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Paul says, I wanted to come visit you all. I never met you, I want to visit you. But I've been preaching and planting churches from Jerusalem to Illyricum so they could be planted and firmly established and plant other churches and preach the gospel in other places. But now, verse 23, since I no longer have any work, room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have been delivered, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. 
So in other words, as Paul gives his travel plans, he says, so I've done this, I've done my work there, and I, I should have mentioned uh, Paul sees himself then fulfilling uh, Isaiah 52, 15, and his work, the gospel, is being proclaimed to people who have never heard. Uh, that was verse 21. But Paul says, now that I've done this work, I've been hindered because I had this need to do that work from coming to you, but now I'm ready to come to you. But before I do, I've got to go to Jerusalem, which was the opposite direction, which was a long way away. And this is, this is one of the places that this theme comes up. The reason that Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem was because other churches in uh, Macedonia and Achaia had been burdened for them financially. Because the saints at the church in Jerusalem, some of them were very poor and struggling. And Paul says, they've taken up a collection, they've done the hard work of giving, I'm going to do the hard work of delivering it to them so that they may be helped. But Paul's not shy about saying, he does say they were pleased to do it, but he also says they ought to do it, right? That's, that's what he says in, uh, in, in verse 27. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Paul says this, this work of the church being built up and loving one another and partnering together in the work of the Great Commission, sometimes that means that toward your brothers and sisters and toward the work of the church of God in another local church, you help them financially. You ought to. You owe it to them, Paul says, because the gospel came to the Gentiles through the Jews. Paul himself was a Jew preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. He said he owed it to them. But the second place where he brings up finances, and it's in maybe a less obvious way, is in verse 24. When he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Paul didn't mean, I want to come visit you in Rome for a little bit. And then I just want to make sure that you give me a good pat on the back. And help me. Help navigate the course, right? I don't know how to travel well. Of course he did. When he said, I want you to help me on my journey, he meant, I'm inviting you to join me financially. This is what uh, the Apostle John would write about in 3 John, verse 8. Those whom we send out, he says, support them well. Support, support them in a manner worthy of their calling. He means support them financially. Now, Paul, in both of these sections, Gentiles toward helping the Jewish brothers and the church in Rome, helping so that he'll be able to go and preach the gospel to Spain, is not shy about saying, put your finances into this glorious work. Now, let me be a bit autobiographical for a second. I've shared this before. Um, my youth uh, was spent in the 80s. So the 80s are kind of a nostalgic time for me. Um, but one thing that's not very nostalgic is the individuals, besides Billy Graham, the individuals that I would see upheld as celebrity pastors or on TV were guys like Jimmy Swaggart or Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Now, if you don't know them, if you know them, you know exactly everything that comes with that, right? If you don't know who those people are, they were, um, Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker were men who were swindling people out of money in the 80s, propping up the gospel of Christ as their means to do it. And so I remember then becoming a pastor, starting pastoring in 1999, 
as someone who had lived his life watching other pastors in the 1980s, especially these men who were simply about swinging people out of their money, I remember saying to myself, I'm not going to be the guy that stands up and talks about money. And for probably 14 years, pastoral ministry, I think I did a really good job of that. And then I read the Bible and I thought, I think I'm sinning. And the reason why is because Jesus Christ, the Bible, speaks so much about finances. The one who's called me as a shepherd to oversee your soul says to us, you want to know where someone's heart is? Look where their treasure is. And so how can I, in good conscience, wanting to offer you as a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord, say, Lord, I wanted to make sure that their hearts were with you. I just never said anything about finances. When you say that that's key. So now, just unapologetically, I think, Merritt and Paul, I just want to say to you as your pastor, put your finances into this glorious work. Do not be someone who says with your finances, but I have things that I want to do for myself, and therefore I cannot afford to put my money into the work of the Great Commission, into the work of the church being built up, into the work of the church being planted. Brothers and sisters, give generously for the honor of Christ. And I promise you, I am not saying that because there's some Jimmy Swaggart tendency in me that wants to be rich. In fact, I don't see this in any way. This is not for my gain or anything about... Brothers and sisters, we are about the work of building up the church and planting the church. We're very open, we're very protective about our finances. Nothing to do with me. Give for the sake of honoring Christ. In my own family, Lily and I, for year after year, are just praying, Lord, move us to increase our giving for the cause of Christ. We have quarterly members meetings where we show you, here's our budget, here's how the money is spent, here's where it's going. But we are wanting to do work of planting churches abroad and in the United States, and it costs money. And I remember one time sitting in an elders meeting with the other guys, and I said to uh, the guys, we were talking about just the expense of this, the expense of sending out somebody like Timothy, the expense of sending out somebody like Chris and Sarah there, set to go to plant churches uh, in Queens, New York. And I said to the guys, I wish this work did not cost money. And Nathan Young lovingly rebuked me, which I appreciate. He's great. No, 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 he's great. He's a great brother. So Nathan Young rebuked me, and it stuck with me since because it was such a great rebuke. He said to me, brother, if this work did not cost money, then we could not be as involved in it as we get to be. Think about 3 John 8. Support them in a manner worthy of the calling that you may be fellow workers with them. You may not get to go and see a church planted in Salt Lake City or in Queens, New York or in the jungles of Peru or in Nairobi, Kenya or we could go on and on and on with where we've sent individuals. But if you will reach deep in your pockets and give to the church to the ends of those causes, you are fellow workers with them. And that's not even all. 
The fact that it costs money enables you and me to live lives of making sacrifices and trusting the Lord. It enables us to feel needy and pray. I don't know how many times that I've sat and prayed, Lord, this work needs money. If this individual is going to go and the church is going to be planted or somebody's already there and they're struggling financially, they need you. The fact that it costs money leads us to pray. And so I just want to encourage you, put your finances into this glorious work, not because I've pleaded with you to do that this morning, because the New Testament itself pleads with you again and again to do that. And then finally, number four, commit yourselves to prayer for this mission. Commit yourselves to prayer for this mission. In Paul's last few verses, the main driving factor that he asked for is prayer. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my servant for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. You saw the phrase there in verse 30, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Now, Paul, just, just, just by way of reminder, here's the guy who writes this. Paul is an apostle and became an apostle because the risen Lord Jesus Christ visibly appeared to him in the sky. Paul not only is an apostle to whom the resurrected Christ appeared, but he's so clearly directed in his labors throughout the New Testament in very spirit-directed ways. The spirit will sometimes forbid him from going to this area and then show him to go in that area. This is a brother who knew the will of God. In fact, the Lord lavished so much grace on him that Paul will write to the Corinthians and say, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but I was called up into heaven one time. And I saw things that I can't even speak of. In fact, to keep me from being boastful about what I saw, a thorn in the flesh was given to me that I might not exalt myself. So here's an apostle to whom the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ appeared in the sky, spirit-directed. He's been to heaven while he was still walking on earth, whether in the body or out of the body. He doesn't know. I don't know. This is a brother whom the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts 18, when Paul in Corinth, he was preaching the gospel, and it was hard, and he wanted to leave, the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him in a vision and said, I want you to go back into Corinth, and I want you to preach the gospel, because I have many people in that city. If there was ever anyone you would think who could be absolutely sure, a man like us, someone who struggles with sin like us, any man who walked the earth whom you would feel like it would be absolutely sure that what he was about was right and good and he needed nothing to get it done. He knew he was doing the right thing. It would be the Apostle Paul. And you know what? After laying all this stuff, he says, now here's what I want you to do. Strive with me in prayer so that everything I've laid out might be accomplished. Because brothers and sisters, it is not enough to know God's will and then to pursue God's will. We also pray for God's will to be done. And so I want us to be a church that strives together in prayer. On Tuesday mornings, there's some individuals that come up and pray, and I thank God for what they're doing. They gather here and they pray for the work of God to be done. 
but, but individually, we need to be people who are praying as well for this work to be done. This, this first point, let's labor to present one another as pleasing sacrifices to the Lord. Let's pray that the Lord enable us to do this as a church. When we think about church planting and stabilizing churches, let's pray for this end. Right now, I'm just going to read it. It's easier for me to do so. Andy and Laura Pettigrew are back to go back, about to go back to Nairobi, Kenya. Pray for them as they go back to begin the work there so that they can see churches planted in sub-Saharan Africa, which Andy told us just two Sunday nights ago, by 2050, we'll have more Christians in that area than are presently in the world today. And Andy's concern, as you heard from him, is therefore the go- whatever message, the gospel that's going to come out of some here in Africa is going to affect the entire world. I want to make sure that gospel is the gospel of the Bible. And that churches are planted and stabilized and firm and solid there. Pray for them. Casey and Julie, right now, we've sent them out to the jungles of Peru. They've settled in an area. They're trying to disciple and build up and stabilize churches for the sake of reaching an unreached people that live right across the river that nobody else can get to but this group. Pray for them that that would be done. I've sent Timothy and Haley O'Day to Salt Lake City. The Kellers are about to move there. The Ossips are about to move there. Pray for them that, that the Lord would labor and, and empower them to see churches planted and others join them in this work. Christopher and Sarah, just yesterday, as it was like 9,000 degrees in the sun, were gathered on an asphalt parking lot to raise money so that they can pick up and go to Queens, New York, so that they can see the church planted and stabilized and reproduced there. Pray for them. Logan and Ashley Smith are hoping to join them soon. Pray for them. Michael Spain in Milan, Tennessee with uh, Megan and Nick and Shara are there planting a church. We've not only seen these individuals go out for the sake of planting churches, but individuals whom we sent out to help stabilize churches so that they can come healthy, local, reproducing churches. Lon Graham in the state of Washington, William Marshall in Sykeston, Missouri, Chad Davis in Martin, Tennessee, Preston Atkinson in Texas. And I've probably missed some because I just wrote this down quickly before I started. But I wrote it down and I called them by name because I want to say, we know these are good works. Just as Paul knew what he was doing was a good work, but it did not lead Paul to assumption. It led Paul to prayer. And let's not be a church who says, clearly these things are good. We're giving of ourselves We're praying that generous, faithful, serving members would walk out of our doors and leave us for the sake of the gospel to be preached and churches to be planted and churches to be strengthened in other areas. That is good. Yes, it's good. But do not assume. Pray. Pray that God would do it again and again and again and again. And pray that we would not lose focus on that work. There are so many good things that could distract us as a church. But we want to be about the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will tell you, we're a little group in Jackson, Tennessee. It can feel overwhelming just to list what's already there let alone what we're praying will continue to do. And it can feel overwhelming. Lord, how in the world will this work be carried out? And can we have that impact from right here in Jackson, Tennessee? But as you feel overwhelmed by it, this is where you can go right back to what we've been singing all morning. While we were in our weak state, at the right time, 
Christ died for the ungodly. When we were in the place of our greatest need and weren't asking for the Lord's help, he met our greatest need in the most amazing way. We've sung about it this morning. The holy, holy, holy God did a mighty thing and took on flesh and lived a perfect life, died for our sins, and was raised from the dead. And then promised he's coming back to get us. And if the Lord Jesus Christ did that for us in our time of greatest need, and then called us to obedience in laboring in each other's lives and seeing churches planted and stabilized, in pouring our money and giving to the good work of Jesus Christ, and in pouring our prayers into this good work, do we not think that the one who is calling us in this life to walk by faith will hold us and preserve us and do everything necessary for the mission at stake? Indeed, we trust that he will. And let's pray that he will. So what we're going to do to close the service is the same thing we do every Sunday. We're going to take a moment of silence. That moment of silence, if you're visiting with us, is strategic in part. Here's what happens. In that moment of silence, it just lets the ushers come forward and the musicians get on stage. But the strategic goal it has, apart from those things, is this. In this moment of silence, it may be that you've heard God's word this morning and you think, you know what? Paul's autobiographical section in this text, it's allowing me to refocus as well. And I want to be someone who, by the power of the Spirit commits myself to these things for the honor of Christ and the good of his people. So in this moment of silence, if you just want to stop and pray and ask the Lord to aid you, you can do that. If you're not a believer this morning in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Jesus Christ this morning. The one who lived and died and was raised invites you turn from your sin, turn from trying to do enough good and be right before God on your own, turn and by faith accept what I've done for you. If you would like to talk to me or somebody else after the service, we would love to talk to you. If you are a believer, you've placed your faith in Christ, you profess faith in Christ through baptism, then after this moment of silence, we're going to distribute the bread and the cup, and we're going to eat together as a congregation, and then drink together as a congregation, and it's our way of proclaiming Christ's death as our hope and giving thanks to the Lord, even as we begin our call to worship this morning. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to